Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Related to Geeks Book Club. This month's book is one of my absolute favorites. It is The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. We've got a few people in the chat, and then Dad's on the mic with me, and we're going to discuss this book over the next hour or so. And uh, it is my third time reading this book, Dad. This is your this is your first time reading first it, time correct? First time reading it, yes. I finished it yesterday. It took me about a day. It's a very short, nice read it's not an easy read it has a lot of uh-huh. depth to it um uh but uh it's not long it's not a fantasy trilogy or anything like that right um, and um it's a kind of a fantasy novel <laughs> yeah it's it not, is it's not a typical like middle earthian type or dungeons and dragony type fantasy novel yeah, it's it's um, it's the type of fantasy novel. Well, you we're, after you read it, you're not really sure if it's a fantasy novel, um, <laughs> because it's got that whole layer of, of um, themes applied to it that make the fantastical bits seem like they maybe weren't anything but a child's imaginings, um, which I like. I like the multi layers of that, and I like how it all kind of blends together, and there's no real answers to anything one of my favorite parts about this book and i um, i like the way that it is the uh fantasy elements uh, individuals or whatever in the story that point out the fact that uh you know memory is all different and all of this may be yeah yeah completely different if someone else is seeing it and <laughs> it's really um um uh it's it's a wonderful book um, I love it. Mm-hmm. I'll read it again. Um, uh, it's uh, flawed. You know, it has some uh, uh, kind of plot issues or the uh, the relationship between Letty and the protagonist is kind of, uh, um, I don't know, it's uh, like you have these, you're seven years old and you have these godlike creatures living next to you and they get you in trouble and then save you and practically die or whatever have to leave for a while whatever um to save you and it's just like whoa (laughs) there's a little problem with that plot there (laughs) yeah which is not the whole plot of course you know but right but that is the surface story yeah and that's where it gets into like the weirdness of this book is just this book is a lot to do with reality versus uh imagination and fake memories versus real memories and the way that memories can be distorted and stuff like that so there's a, the for me the stuff that doesn't really add up kind of adds to the theme of the book just because things usually don't add up um, when you're recounting memories and and gaps aren't filled in and things are kind of surface level. Uh, (laughs) 
But uh, it's it's also very stylistically Neil Gaiman. Like this is very much the way in which he writes and the the way he does a lot of times his characters and relationships as being kind of one note and kind of you can put anybody in that position. They're kind of they kind of work as empty vessels in a lot of ways. Uh, and especially you'll notice like all of the human characters, I believe, are nameless. The people that receive names are the monsters and the moon goddesses and the, the supernatural beings in the story. But any of the human characters are, are nameless. Yeah, that's true. I didn't even think of that. It's my sister or, or father mm-hmm. or mom. Uh, yeah. Except for the um, the suicide, the minor. Uh, Does he actually get a name, or is he just always just yeah, the he old actually minor? Got a, he actually got a name. He got a name, so maybe he wasn't human. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe we've discovered something. There's a whole layer to the a whole other layer. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I read this book. Oh, two years ago, and um, I read it and then immediately read it again. And then this time, when I read it for this uh, recording, I skimmed it more than I really wanted to. I really wanted to do a deeper read of this, but I just didn't have time, and I kind of rushed through it. But it was enough to bring back all of the, the previous reads enough to keep me somewhat afresh on on what this book is about but for me i this book is all about its themes and i am a huge fan of a a book that knows what it's trying to do and doesn't necessarily have to accomplish things outside of it it is a very short compact story it, it has issues with its plot. It has issues with its characters, but its theme is so rich and interesting and uh, promotes such wonderful discussion uh, that that's, that's clearly what the focus was. I think it's in like the acknowledgements towards the end or somewhere in there. He talks a little bit about how it's, it's kind of a story that he just cobbled together little by little with just different aspects. And and it was a, a book of discovery more than anything. I think the uh, point of view uh, that he uses there, you get this seven-year-old point of view through so much of the story. And then it turns out that it's the other point of view <laughs> that is... Uh, himself older you know so you have Mm -hmm. the same two different points of view from the same character Uh, yeah and uh, that that especially the seven-year-old point of view really worked for me yeah it frames it because it's an older version reminiscing about it it frames it less as a coming of age story and more of a loss of innocence story yeah, it's definitely not coming of age because he's still seven when it's done. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, he's. you also have this view of him as an adult, but 
that's kind of outside of the story itself, or I guess I don't know how how you would uh, a meta plot. Uh, it's uh, when you think about the guy as an adult, okay, and he lives his life and doesn't remember any of this, mm-hmm. and he has hard times when he's twenty. And he finds himself back at the farm and he goes and sits on that bench and remembers it all. And then he leaves and he forgets it all again. And then yep. and then four years later, he's having hard times and he finds himself back at the farm and he sits on that bench and he remembers it all again. That's a, that's a pretty bizarre life to be leading. And the idea that that's being done through like memory manipulation by these superhuman beings, that's pretty weird. So yeah. I'm, I'm more like that kind of points to that he can come to this place and remember what it, the way he believed things to be when he was a child, you know, and somehow mm-hmm. that helps him through his current um, problems that he's having rather than a literal fantasy super family that lives next door and was here at the beginning of the universe and etc. I mean it's uh uh yeah. that you that, can that sub layer that's all about his experience being primary, you know, through this story. Um however incorrect, whatever that means. Yeah. If you get what I'm getting at there. Yeah. You can have a very non-fantasy reading of this book. You can have it just be straight up repressed memories and a child's way of rationalizing terrible things that happened to him and PTSD and all of this stuff and remove the fantasy from it all together and it still reads like a, a, a you know a complete story. Um, but and, and it, you it can, actually you, hangs better. Yeah. It's, and you can Yeah. And you can read it with all of the fantasy stuff as being real, you know. It's uh-huh. it's that's that's the that's the part that got me super excited about this book is you got to the end and you're just like I don't know which which version to lean towards more. Um I love the so a couple of aspects that I love. I love the idea of people equated him returning to the, the ocean, the duck pond, that, that it, to something akin to going through like a box of childhood memories, like going through a box that you have tucked back in your closet that has like toys from your childhood or a blanket or just one of the, you know, those things that you hold on to as an adult to every now and again, pull out and remember what it was like to be a child and to have, and to have that kind of be an explanation for that, that that's his, that estate is his box of childhood memories. Like I like, the fantasy parts of this story and I like the the non-fantasy parts of this story like the the I love how ambiguous it all is I love how you can read this and just be like I don't really know what happened there 
but it made me feel things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and when I when I read it, of course, um, I read it like a straight-up fantasy novel. I just totally immersed in the, the suspension of disbelief and went mm-hmm. with it, you know. Um, uh, and it's when that part of the story started to not hang so good that it drove me into looking deeper at the other aspects of what could be happening here yeah and um i mentioned there's uh other interpretations too the um the the science fiction part of it uh, Mm -hmm. kind of reminded me of uh madeline langle in wrinkle in time yeah um and uh they even use uh the uh the cloth the sewing and and mending and and the cloth was in uh, wrinkle in time idea of how you could uh, you know uh, have four dimensional space or whatever um, uh, and of course the Narnia is built into uh, the book you know that's the that's what he got for his birthday was the Narnia series um, mm-hmm. and uh, and there is a um, standard literature character, which is the unhappy child bookworm, um, who later becomes heroic somehow, um, or not, you know. But that is a pretty, there's a, uh, evidently a lot of authors identify with unhappy child bookworms. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you feel about, because you mentioned the idea of the child becoming heroic, whereas this book, that's not really the case. The child is always just a witness. He has that one moment of, like, kind of running out and take me, but it's fleeting because Letty stops him almost immediately and protects him. Yeah. Um, He doesn't really. or, Or he dies and Letty gives him her heart. Yeah. Yeah, one or the other, <laughs> or something else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. But yes, it, but that was very heroic. And he was mm-hmm. heroic in many ways. He was heroic in pulling, you know, uh, pulling the monster out of his body with the tweezers. Um, he was heroic in going down the drain pipe mm-hmm. uh, and so on and so forth. There was a lot of... Um, you know, personal um, uh, courage. Yeah. Um, and fortitude, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, stiff upper lip or whatever, you know. Or not even, not so much stiff upper lip as not even thinking about taking these problems to someone else. That's the last thing mm-hmm. I would want to do is involve someone else in this. So uh, I found him to be a strong protagonist and and like a, a hidden hero. He wasn't out there with the sword protecting people or nothing. Yeah. 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 No, I got you. I got you. And Letty, uh, was, Letty was definitely a hero. And, of course, the other two ladies as well, her mother and grandmother. Uh, yeah. Very heroic, you know, and almost nonchalantly so. Yeah. I've So, for me, the protagonist has... A couple of key things to his character that I absolutely adore. Um, the the one that has always 
stood out to me is the how single-minded and of the moment he can be. But uh, the other one is that fortitude. I think the idea of the... Um, what do they call it? Like the fairy ring or something where he was having to stay inside the circle uh-huh. yeah, and, and having to go through those trials over and over again. I think that's another good shining example of, of his ability. I mean, you gotta, you gotta realize that this is a seven year old protagonist. So there's only so much you can ask for them. Uh, but it is for me, I really liked the fact that the the kid was really good at finding silver linings in bad situations. Uh-huh. Um, that was apparent towards the beginning. Like he had no friends come to his birthday party, but he got presents and cake and stuff. And that was cool. And he had to be moved to his sister's room, but he liked the space next to the window. And there was parts of that that he enjoyed. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, he he had this kind of wistful uh childlike under understanding of finding the good in bad situations but he just kept getting bad situations but there's there's another i think deeper thematic element to that is that sometimes that's a cue i think for us as readers to look at the fact that as he continued to grow up um this idea of the way that the child kind of naturally held on to the good parts of his life and tried to ignore the bad parts of his life could cue that there's a lot of really bad things that he just abandoned altogether and forgot about, which is definitely held up in the, in the text. Yeah, that's true. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of cool cues. I like the cue at the very beginning of the little kitten the sweet innocent kitten um, dying and then getting replaced with an old tomcat um, as kind of a weird metaphor of loss of innocence and the the old grumps we all eventually become. At, and that's at the very beginning of the story. I mean, you know, <laughs> like right off the bat, it's just like we're going to kill off a kitten and replace it with an old grumpy tomcat as a cue to be... This is this is part of growing up. Is this this transitional thing that happens? Yeah, and he's didn't really even like the time, but he still fed him every day. Yeah. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. That you know, I don't like him, but he could still eat. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. I got my job. I'm still doing my job. Yeah, I don't have my kitty, but at least I'm still doing my job. Yeah. That was that was tough. And that was a little that was another part that was a little bit over the top plot wise. That you you like this kid and he gets a little kitty and you like the little kitty and the kid and they're doing great and then the guy comes and runs over him in a car. Yep. The kitty. Yeah. And that's a whoa. <laughs> that's out there. Hello. We have Spark joining us. I'm just I'm just staring at this zombie coming out this door at me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I gotta type some more so I can get that zombie off my screen. Yeah, that was like 
a bad Gretchen joke. Yeah. <laughs> Poor kitty cat. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I just like kitty cats, and I like the fact that that cat came back. And what difference does it make if it was in his imagination or not? And mm-hmm. I like the fact that when he's an adult, he comes back, and there's that cat again. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. It's part of it. I've I've uh, explored some uh, different point of views in this book and some some different people's analysis of it. And you mentioned like things like the memory ma- manipulation, which definitely feels like that that's in the text as something that the oh my goodness. Speaking of kitties, my kitty just attacked my foot. That's in the text. That's something that the the moon goddesses do is that they manipulate memories. Yes, but. It's also, I think, just a natural side effect of that, of their farm, of the ocean, of whatever it is that's magical about their property. Um, because at sometimes they talk about it and in such a matter-of-fact way to where it's not like something that they're doing. It's just something that happens that naturally people forget things that they don't want to hold on to or, or um, it's easier to let go of certain memories or it's easier to allow yourself to to grow up and lose some of that uh, childlike whimsy of, of seeing things in certain ways because it's harder to see things that way as an adult. And uh, the ocean, the ocean itself kind of worked like because when he was in the ocean, he knew everything, you know, he had this moment of, I, I am all understand all. And so it was, it's, it's a further representation of like true knowledge, true understanding of everything and, and, and grasping all reality. And then this idea of the further removed he is from that, the, the less he remembers. Yeah. Yeah. He returned. Sorry, I was just says like it's it's just yeah he returns to the ocean to remember. Yeah, he does. He returns to the ocean to remember. And when they when they actually use the ocean in the plot and all that, I kind of followed that um, from like a science fiction or fantasy like portal type. You yeah. know what I'm saying? It's uh, obviously a, a alternate universe or different realities, different things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, which is the whole way that the duck pond can be an ocean is, and that the ocean can be in a bucket. I like that yeah. part. That was very inventive of Mr. Gaiman to put the ocean in a bucket. Yeah. And I like the um, deal with the phases of the moon and all that, full moon and half moon, and uh, how, uh, I guess, on the uh, Hempstead Farm, uh your time, you know, you could be whatever time you wanted it to be, kind of. Okay, sorry. I had to look up. It was bothering me. I had to look up their their actual name because I was thinking it was Hempstock, but I was... Hempstock? Hempstock, yeah. Okay, what did I say? Something wrong? Huh? I don't know if you said Hempstock or something else, but I, I just knew that I was having trouble pulling that name out and it was driving me crazy, so I had to look yeah. it up. Um. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the Hempstock Farm is like the magic system in this book. Yeah. yeah all, the, all the magic has to do with that location. Yeah. And it's well, very, yeah. very much matters 
which side of the fence you're on there, you know. Yeah, it was even the case with the like the uh, varmints. Yeah. You know, that's that was the issue is they violated that property. That property is is some kind it is considered some kind of sacred space in this vast magical multi-dimensional thing that's going on. That entire property is outside of reality. Um or at least as, our, ver as, our red, version red of a, reality as red humans. Red is a fantasy. Red is yeah. a fantasy novel. <laughs> Not necessarily from the point of view of of the characters. Um, maybe the the Letty and her mother and grandmother saw that clearly. Most humans in the story didn't see that at all as it being any different whatsoever. Of course, um, protagonists definitely felt it was different. Yeah. For the protagonist, it was different. He's got a lot of um, uh, mythology, uh, different, uh, you know, snippets of different myths all cut through it. Um, when he gets lost in the fields and he's trying to get to the hempstock farm and all that in the night and it's raining and all that, it's, you really get this, um, uh, I guess, back to Greek mythology feel there. Yeah, that is, I mean. Same with the fairy circle and the, um, yeah. the varmints. Um, there are several different little sub-stories that read just like myths, and that's certainly intentional, and it's certainly mentioned in the text because that's what the protagonist likes the best is myths. Yeah. This is, I feel like, one of the more personal stories from Gaiman, even though it may not be anywhere close to, like, I don't know what his actual upbringing was. I don't know if he has good relationships, bad relationships with his parents, or if he had experiences with neglect or whatnot. I don't, I don't know any of that. But there's just something about this that feels so personal, um, more so than his, than his other works. And I think part of it is that reminiscing aspect of it. I think the way that it's framed from the point of view of the older protagonist really makes it land in a completely different way than if you didn't have those sections. If it just started with the boy's birthday and ended with him being returned home, the story would have a very different feel. Yeah, completely. Um so, in some ways, the meta framework surrounding the the story of the boy is, uh, well, it's at least really important, you know, uh, for the overall story to to hang in a variety of ways like it does. So, we've talked a little bit about the hempstocks. We've talked a little bit about the, the protagonist. So, so, what do you make of uh, Ursula Moncton? Because that's a thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, she's the part that lends the most credibility to it um, just being a, a seven-year-old kid's weird point of view going on. Uh, uh -huh. Overlaying uh, a more consensual reality that's happening 
Uh, I I tend to think it's it's not at all unlikely that uh, she got recommended. She seduced the husband, had an affair with him. The boy freaked her out. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, and that she had to leave because the wife, God knows what was going yeah. on. Yeah. And and she wasn't a monster at all. You know. Uh, yeah. It doesn't it doesn't uh, help the fantasy story to think of it that way. But that's that's the one little narrative there that's stuck in at the end. That's kind of fleshed out in the end. That um, uh, that lends credence to the idea that this is. Um, all just a boy's uh, what fantasy uh, play characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's going down to this old farm where nobody's living, and he's made up these friends. Yeah. It also goes back to the. Uh, I wish I had my copy of the book, but the quote at the very beginning that's of the idea of says something along the lines of. As a child, I saw dark things, but I didn't want to tell the adults that I saw the dark things. Let me see if I can find the actual quote. So the quote at the beginning of it, before you actually start reading the book, is that I remember my own childhood vividly. I knew terrible things, but I knew I mustn't let adults know I knew it would scare them. So, the idea of Ursula Monkton either being this truly horrible being from another dimension that's uh, just there to uh, basically, you know, ruin this boy's life in a sense, give everybody around them what they want in a way that is actually destructive and not... You know, I like the commentary of the idea that maybe maybe the the monster isn't actually bad. It's just, you know, different or or, or living the way it, or it's supposed to. Um, that's kind of expressed in the book. But you have that context of the boy seeing the monster for what it really is, or the boy just is somehow aware of the actual thing that's going on between this babysitter and his father or maybe the fact that his father has some kind of anger issue on top of that and being aware of that and the instances that occur in the book through his father's anger. But there's multiple, again, multiple ways that you can read this. Like he's seeing things that are fantastical or he's seeing things that are reality that are just bad and just painting this fantastical picture on them to, to, cope with it uh but it's it is a theme that's driven home over and over and over again in a way that you're still not really sure which which way to take the book if you take it on the it's all in this kid's head or this is actual fantasy stuff going on yeah but either way ursula moncton moncton is a monster Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just how you view that monster. And uh, obviously, other people in the story viewed her differently. 
Mm-hmm. But and that may you may say, well, that lends credence to the fact that he was laying his imagination over, or it could just be the way things always are when monsters are around, that not everyone sees what they are. Yeah. And it's kind of explained in the context of the book that he has a different relationship with this monster because the monster used him as her door to get into this world. Yeah. So he can see her for what she really is, whereas everybody else... Yeah, she's uh, just a person because that's what yeah, she she's looks just a like. Person. Except for the other magical beings who also see her for what she is. But there is something to be said about if, you know... You got a new babysitter as a seven-year-old who's in your old room who is laying down all these rules about when and where you can be, who's telling you to take naps when you're much too old for naps, who's flirting with your father and making you uncomfortable with that situation, that it's very easy for that child-like, you know, spends all their time in the pages of a book reading about these fantastical situations these myths and all of these stories that they're going to paint that person as a literal monster as a way of explaining it of rationalizing that you know and make it to be even something along the lines of my my father has intense anger issues or maybe he even has a drinking problem that's not expressed in the book in a in a way that's completely realized or whatever and had a had an instance where he ab- abused me or multiple is- instances where he abused me and it's easier for me to rationalize that as a monster made him do that than that was my actual dad you know there's lots of there's lots of things that can tie back to that idea of finding a way as a 7 year old to rationalize things that seem impossible yeah but firstly involving you know some of the only people that you're close to that you love mm-hmm. well and I think again towards the end of is it towards the end of the book that he talks about never really having a good relationship with his dad until he's like in his 20s Yeah, I finally made friends with my father when I entered my 20s. Yeah. We had so little in common when I was a boy. And I was certain I had been a disappointment to him. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. But as a boy, he clearly looked up to his father and, you know, respected him and idolized him in a way, you know. Spark in chat is comparing this to... uh, I Kill Giants, which I haven't read yet. It's on my list. But now that he's making those comparisons, I'm like, well, I want to read that even more. (laughs) I actually had it in my hands this last Friday when I was at the comic book store and didn't buy it. Which I didn't need to buy it. I didn't really have the money to justify it at the time. But still, it was was a decision. (laughs) (sighs) Well, the um, most famous literary precedent I can think of for I Kill Giants and the Ocean at the End of the Lane is The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. 
So have you read The Secret Life of Walter Mitty? Nope. Okay, well, he's he's an ordinary um, working stiff who just goes back and forth from a desk job or something like that or school or something. I don't know. But, but in his mind, he's a hero. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's pretty great. Yeah, it's there's no um, ambiguity to it, you know. <laughs> yeah. You get into that um, Don Quixote. Yeah, Don Quixote. There's uh, there's an even older, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, I believe is uh, 20th century, but Don Quixote's 19th, I think. Um, uh, Don Quixote, that's great. In a way, he, yeah, lives in a fantasy world in his own reality. Everywhere around him is just engaging in commerce, and he's a knight, you know, yeah. Okay, 17th century, see? I was thinking it was older. <laughs> it's good to have Vivian here. It's... Keep me straight. It's massive. It's way longer than you think it is. Whenever you actually go and hold a copy, you're less like, why is this so long? <laughs> 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 you think Don Quixote, and you think, oh, he goes and fights windmills, and that's it, right? <laughs> <laughs> It's like a 50-page short story, right? Nope, it's a big old book. <laughs> I personally liked the second half of Don Quixote was written because the author found out people were making unauthorized fan fiction. So he wrote his own sequel uh, that's now included with it of mm -hmm. Don Quixote hunting down these fan fiction writers. <laughs> <laughs> Nowadays, when you get to the point where you got people write, writing fan fiction on your characters, you go, hooray. <laughs> That's the big time. <laughs> anyway. Tis a classic for me. Yeah, I definitely read parts of it in college, but I haven't read the whole mess. I haven't read it. I've read parts of it. Right. Selections, excerpts from textbooks, more or less. You read at it, okay. Vivian read at it, yeah. Hello, mm. Nistel. Hey, hello. Oh. You got your mic on and everything, great. Um, this is uh, Related Geeks Book Club. Have you read any Neil Gaiman? Actually, I have read a bit of Neil Gaiman. I recently um, read his mythology book. We're we're reading we're discussing the uh, ocean at the end of the line, a kind of a, a Neil Gaiman myth kind of book. Um, have you read that one? No, I haven't, but I don't mind sitting and listening. Yeah, um, yeah. And and you can comment too, having read other of his books, or or just because you got something to say that has nothing to do with the book we're discussing. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, um, uh, we both recommend it. It's a real short read, and it, if you read any of his other books and like them, I'm sure you'd like the. It's not like his other books, but uh, I'm sure you. Ah, would no like problem. It. Uh, what's the name of it again? Just so I'm the ocean at the end of the lane. Okay. And there's definitely been spoilers so far, and there's likely to be more spoilers. So that's okay. Yeah. Well, Don't worry about it. I mean, honestly, I I'm kind of. 
towards the end of the conversation. Um, I will say just, just in general, uh, everything I've read by, by Neil Gaiman, I've enjoyed, um, I've definitely enjoyed some stuff more than others. He's, he's, he's very different. Um, and there's some things that, uh, he falls short on that I can certainly understand. Like, uh, some of his characters aren't really as well developed as they should be or, or things like that. Um, but for me, there's, there's something that's just, that he just does stylistically that I really enjoy that comes across in all of his stuff that he's done. Very can, kind of uh, folksy realist. I told, uh, yeah. I told Vivian that uh, um, she would like him because he writes sometimes, especially this book, a, a little bit like Clifford Simak, who's one of Vivian's favorite authors. He has a good way of making the mundane fantastic. Like making the mundane that like feel like whimsical and magical and uh, neverwhere is one of the best examples that I can come to my mind of just how he can make he can make the magical feel boring and he can make the boring feel magical and he can do those things simultaneously in like the same page. <laughs> I really enjoyed a study in Emerald. Sherlock Holmes fan fiction mixed with the Cthulhu mythos. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's about about the same historical time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I saw I saw a post online that was something like we had so far this year we've had um war, fire and disease and then it just showed a picture of Cthulhu rising out of the waters like this is my prediction for April. Uh <laughs> <laughs> twenty twenty, who could have seen it coming? Well, it was just like twenty nineteen in uh was pretty bad so uh, let's uh turn up the bullshit <laughs> <laughs> i just remember all those posts at the beginning of the year they were just like i remember being like come at me 2019 and now i'm just like please take it easy 2020 and apparently that strategy didn't work either <laughs> <laughs> hey, look the plague <laughs> <laughs> oh man well, I was talking to Vivian earlier today, and uh, this is more from literature than anything. I am not a historian, but um, uh, at least there are some people who have premised that during the plague in England, sometimes entire villages wiped out to the man, not like 2% fatality or 5% fatality, but 100% fatality. Yeah, Total we have a better understanding on, of on a whole village of uh, yeah yeah. Well, we have a better understanding of how germ theory works and how to keep people safe and all that. It's just resources at this point. But the um, the uh, uh, the diseases that that we um, see as uh, 
pandemics and epidemics, um, some of them have a 50% can get it. You know what I'm saying? And, and even then, most of that 50% that can get it is not going to die from it. Um, but the plague was like, I mean, I mean, I realized that they all got it because they didn't know how not to get it. But I mean, it was killing everybody. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible. Yeah. But um, I think I have heard um, one fourth of the population of Europe. Uh, I mean, that's really weird. Well, I feel really bad considering I started my game with a plague in it, not knowing this was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I had to rewrite yeah. my, my Warhammer uh, ending from Nurgle Cultist to Skaven because I was just like, that's th that's too soon. <laughs> I started this in like September, and yeah, then this came out. I was like, uh, kind of <laughs> deep in it now. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, life uh, uh, copying art. <laughs> yeah. Vice versa, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, I've seen many pictures on Facebook of people playing the pandemic board game during all of this just because it seemed appropriate. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Takes all kinds. At least I wonder what other. Yeah. At least the pandemic board game will teach you that. Uh, Epidemics and pandemics are cooperative ventures. Yeah. I wonder what other board games there are for that this kind of simulation. I, I already so, brought up Pathologic once, but... Yeah. So there's also... Um, I think there's a board game version of Plague, Inc., which is typically associated with a video game or, you know, a mobile game. Um, yeah. But it's not about beating the pandemic. It's about killing everybody because you are actually playing as the plague. Um, <laughs> so it's yeah. a completely different vibe. <laughs> uh, I, I don't worry about it. We play war games all the time and we're always going to war, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We didn't stop Call of Duty just because we were in a battle in every nation, so. Yeah. Well, Call of Duty was never really about the horrors of war. It's more about, hey, check out this cool thing. Yeah, yeah, I know. But, like, you know, it's a, it's just one of those things saying, like, you know, oh, we, you know, people shouldn't do it because, you know, this yeah. is happening. I'm like, well, then you couldn't play war games. We're always in battle with someone. Yeah. But I... He, uh, really want to play is the Doom board game because Eternal's coming in like four days. Mm. So I was about to say, I own the Doom board game and it's fantastic. Oh yeah. Me too. I just can't get people to play. Yeah, I've only played it like three times in the three years I've owned it. <laughs> but <laughs> at least I've gotten it to the table. <laughs> I picked it up for the minis, I'll be honest. I just wanted to paint some and some cacos. Yeah. Uh have you guys played uh or or seen a World of Horror? No, I haven't. It's uh like uh 
video game that kind of here, post the yeah it's header. creepy looking <laughs> it's got well it's got a it really looks, old yeah. style uh was playing that uh the other day with my buddy he managed to get through the whole um basic scenario uh just uh through dumb luck on picking up a shovel early on and just pumping strength so scary monster shovel <laughs> yeah if you get the shovel you can win hey hey i i don't knock the game for that at all because i have watched so many horror movies and i'm just like why are you not picking up a weapon this would be so much easier with a weapon so just yeah. say you know recognize your players for having the the idea of being like hey i can use this <laughs> i can beat things with this <laughs> i treat horror movies like a puzzle like what should they have done <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah. they shouldn't have done whatever they did. <laughs> yeah. For Friday the 13th, me and a couple friends uh, watched some horror movies. And you know what? Uh, one of the movies we watched was uh, Friday the 13th, for obvious reasons. And uh, that original one, I really couldn't find anything that the main characters did wrong other than, you know... Because none of them knew, nobody discovered any of the bodies or any sign that somebody was going around killing people until uh, until the last one. The first ones usually make more sense than the sequels. Yeah. Well, the first one is a relatively grounded for revenge story. And then the second movie was like, but what if zombie? Yeah. <laughs> The third one was like, let's give the zombie a hockey mask. <laughs> and then we just go on from there. Uh, we also watched... Uh, like, I had the solve for Nightmare uh, on Elm Street. Go change the street sign. You solved the puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, oh, I see the problem. We've named this wrong. <laughs> oak, oak, oak would be much better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Screw this Elm Street. <laughs> um also well, the first one we watched was uh Reanimator. Oh. And the solution to that one is just fucking stuff Herbert West in a locker. He's like <laughs> he's like five feet tall. <laughs> I'll uh, stop letting him reanimate shit. There, we, we did it. We solved the puzzle. Like, literally, the chain of events for that movie to go, go downhill are... Uh, uh, a med... Uh, new med student comes, his name's Herbert West, and, and shares an apartment with another med student named Daniel Kane. So, first thing, you let this guy into your apartment even though he, he was a creep secondly the cat uh, uh, of Kane's dies uh, and and Kane and his girlfriend discover that Herbert West has it in his fridge kick him out uh, uh, Herbert West reanimates the cat at which which then attacks 
Herbert and Kane because, you know, that's what a zombie do. Yeah. And from there, you, they just kept letting him reanimate stuff, including one sequence where they break into the morgue to reanimate a corpse, which causes a ruckus, which causes the dean who who uh, has onto their antics to show up, and the reanimate corpse kills the dean. So Herbert West immediately reanimates the dean. <laughs> it's just like stop letting this guy use his green syringe. Stop it. Please. Mm, I haven't seen that movie in a hot minute. I kind of want to watch it again now. (laughs) Certain horror movies almost become comedy like Phantasm. Yeah. That was on on the voting list, but we ended up not watching that one. That's definitely my preferred when it comes to horror movies, is the ones that are just so bad they're good kind of levels. Yeah. I mean, I'm always going to like Dead Alive just because of the priest jumping up and screaming that kick ass for the Lord. Like, that was just... <laughs> God. <laughs> I'm never going to forget that scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wouldn't have voted for him to be the one to make Lord of the Rings later on in life if I would have guessed. <laughs> you just never know, man. Not where I saw his career going, but hey. <laughs> Did any of you guys see The Lighthouse yet? Nope. That one's a slow burn, but once it actually kicks into gear, or you realize the whole reason it's a slow burn is so that you can feel how uh, the main character feels being stuck on a rock with a half-crazy sailor. Mm-hmm. The isolation and the and all that. Yeah, when it comes to horror movies, I, tener- I generally like two kinds. I like the, the goofy ones, or I like the psychological ones. So Yeah. That's definitely in the psychological category. Yeah. Well, in the Neil Gaiman book, we discussed the fantasy elements and the science fiction elements, but there were substantial horror elements all the way through the entire. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a dark. It's a dark fantasy. That's how it's categorized. You have been listening to the Related to Geeks Book Club, recorded March sixteenth, twenty twenty, on the Gamer Plus Inspired Unreality Open Game Chat held at Tankers Tavern on Discord. For more about our geeky family, visit relatedtogeeks.com. For more information about Inspired Unreality, join Gamer Plus, a social network for gamers, at gamerplus.org. Megan and Larry discussed the Neil Gaiman book, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. They were joined by Tail, Mast and Danger, Spark, and Vivian. The music for this show is Wayfaring, by Harry Larry, recorded by NJHB at the Jonesboro Public Library Round Room on March 9th, 2019.